Navigating the healthcare landscape as a patient or caregiver has never been more challenging. Ali Diab, co-founder and CEO of Collective Health, has experienced this firsthand, and it was those challenges that motivated him to improve the quality and cost of company-sponsored healthcare. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ali discusses his personal journey through the healthcare system and how he built Collective Health to help avoid pitfalls in the healthcare industry. Plus, he touches on how advancement in technology is making a difference in healthcare, what he is doing to make a difference himself, and much more. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. I'm Ian Fizz on Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we are on location. Ollie, what's going on? Not much, man. I'm living the dream. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I love this space. We're at Collective Health HQ here in sunny San Francisco. Um, cut through the fog this morning to get over here. And uh, I'm just so excited. Uh, we... We met Brian Lilly, who was the former CIO at Equinix, awesome guy. And he said that this is a company that he's obsessed with. Uh, we dug in and we are uh, quickly obsessed too. So we're going to talk your background, uh, why you started Collective Health. Um, but I'm curious, before we get into all of that, did you ever feel like you were going to start a company? Did you ever want to start a company? Um, was this something that was a, a childhood dream or did it just happen this way? I think it became a dream. I think my childhood dream was to be a professional soccer player. And when I broke my ankle, those dreams kind of faded. But um, yeah, I've had I've had aspirations to start a company since I'd say probably the middle to second half of high school. Um, I started like little tiny businesses as a kid, you know, this sort of lemonade stand. Yeah. You know, note taking kind of thing. I deliver newspapers, if you call that a business. But uh, yeah, I always sort of like would read my dad's copies of Forbes or the Wall Street Journal and be like, oh, my God, those titans of industry seem really cool. And they're cool suits and running these big, powerful companies. And I've always been interested in products, too. What did so. your dad do? My dad well, he's passed away, but my dad was a law professor and lawyer for, I don't know, 50 plus years. And just digging into digging into Forbes. Yeah, literally. Like he'd, I mean, he'd get a subscription to all those like Forbes Economist, et cetera. Yeah. And I would like pick him up and be like, what is this? And then starting, I think like in the ninth or tenth grade, he like set up a little investment account for me. And so I'd like read them religiously to find out like oh, what okay. the major business trends were. So yeah, it was really cool. I credit my dad with a lot of the, I guess, interest I have in business and maybe commercial savvy that I've got. So you talked about products um, and building products. What was what were the type of things that you were you were working on that you were thinking about for products? It's funny. I mean, I started. So I'm a I'm a PhD dropout in economics. Um, my family they're all academics. My dad was a law professor, as I said. My mom was a professor of medicine. My brother is a professor of medicine, and I was planning on going down the path of being an academic myself, thinking of doing something in economics and teaching probably macroeconomics at the time. Um, I got a scholarship to study abroad. And and two years into it, I was like, I, this is not what I want to do. I can't run another regression. I can't <laughs> like run another experiment. I need to like get out into the real world. And I was fortunate enough at the time to run into a senior partner, Rich Hayden at Goldman Sachs, um, who offered me a job like right on the spot when I was at Oxford. And I was like, oh my God, okay, I'm going to do this. And I remember calling my dad to tell him and he was like, what are you doing? 
And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to work for like one of the world's like premier financial institutions. What do you mean? What am I doing? He's like, no, but you've got such a great career ahead of you. Would you be an academic like us? I was like, I don't want to be an academic. So anyway, don't, cut. It's the classic, <laughs> don't, don't let a good job uh, get in way of yes. uh, getting the way of your career. <laughs> totally. Totally. Or a great company yeah. get, get away from you. So anyway, I went to work for Goldman Sachs um, and it was probably one of the best product experiences I had. I mean, people don't think of investment banks yeah, no as kidding. product companies, but the financial products that we built while I were there were really, really fascinating. This was kind of like the heyday of junk bonds and structured finance and swaptions and derivatives. And so I just got to see how people thought about product in that sense. Um, and then, you know, the internet came along and the first sort of internet wave the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, hit me squarely in the face. I saw all my friends like leave prestigious, high paying, safe jobs on Wall Street and elsewhere to go start companies and become bazillionaires. And I was like, well, I can do that. And so like, I was home for the Christmas holiday in 1999, 2000. And a couple of friends of mine from Stanford were all like at good sort of stable paying jobs. So one was actually in grad school doing his PhD in computer science. And we all literally quit our jobs like right there and started a company. So it was pretty crazy. So flash forward, and I want to get into more, more of that yeah. stuff, um, but flash forward to now. Um, tell me about Collective Health. What was the reason that this started coming about? And, and, I'll, and I'll preface this a little bit with Collective Health has a trailing 12 point or 12 month average of a net promoter score of 76, which compared to the health industry, uh, which I think is about a seven. Yeah, health, so, insur health insurance. Healthcare is better, but health insurance is really bad. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all, uh, pardon the pun here, collectively know that there's something broken, but actually doing it and actually taking this massive investment of time, effort, and resources. Um, why did you do this? It's a great question. I mean, I had no plan to get into healthcare. I mean, even though I'm the son and brother of doctors, I had no plan to get into healthcare. That was a very early decision that I made in my life. Um, and I'm a consumer, kind of following on your last question, I'm a consumer product guy by background. I mean, like when I quit, you know, working on Wall Street, I went squarely into the internet sector and I've been there my entire career. You know, Yahoo, AdMob, Microsoft. And for me, I, I think, like I said earlier, I've had like this interest in products ever since I was really young. And I'm obviously a Bay Area native and a product of the Valley in a lot of ways and observed a lot of the great products that came out of the Valley. So for me, when I got sick in early 2013, completely out of the blue, I had what's known as a small intestinal volvulus which is just a fancy Latin way of saying my small intestine twisted on itself. Mm. And then I had basically a heart attack in my small intestine where like all of the tissue beneath that point of the twist and my intestine died within minutes. And I ended up having about 10 feet of my small intestine removed through a series of very painful, very arduous surgeries. And I was like, okay, thank God that I live in the US where I get like the world's best medical care. And at the same time, while I was recovering, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea how much this is going to cost, but thank God I've got great, you know, platinum PPO employer insurance. And I was very surprised when I came home from the hospital, you know, weeks later to receive these denial of coverage notices from our health insurance company. I was like, denial of coverage. And, and literally like almost half of my build hospital charges were denied for reasons that I couldn't even understand because there were all these like cryptic codes yeah. that explained the denial reason. And I was like, okay, first, first of all, this like sending me a piece of paper in the mail with a code that says EXP, you know, with like big bold, like almost looks like, you know, a, like a warrant notice. Yeah, like, you no, know, it does. Like it does. you have been denied coverage. I'm like, oh my God, what does that mean? 
Um, and then to discover that, you know, like almost a quarter million dollars worth of hospital charges were then just left on my doorstep in a steaming pile to fix. And I was like, okay, as a consumer product person, this just really sucks. Um, but then like the economist in me or the finance guy in me started to like kick in and be like, why does it suck? Like, why do they do this? You know, and having worked for one of the world's greatest market makers in financial services, I was like, I wonder if these guys are really just abusing their market power. And to kind of cut to the chase, I think the health insurance industry has grown, I would say, unintentionally. If you look at any major health insurance company, it's really an amalgamation of like tens or dozens of smaller regional insurance companies that have all kind of turned into these like Frankenstein Borgs. Um, and at the same time, I think kind of unchecked, and I'm not a fan of regulation by any means, but I think unchecked, the industry has gotten incredibly powerful. And I think to the detriment of all of us who end up having to actually shoulder the burden of cost. And the way that they keep us out is by doing these kind of I hate to say it, but like crappy things where they kind of make it really hard for you to understand and penetrate and get to the sort of root cause of why they behave the way that they do. And so that's why we're all about just making everything like bare, like transparent. We lay everything bare for our customers. And in the U.S., we have an idiosyncratic healthcare market where employers cover the vast majority of working Americans and the majority of us in total out of 340 million of us, employers cover about 180 million roughly. So like it or not, employers are among the very biggest payers of healthcare, bigger than Medicare, bigger than Medicaid. And I felt like if we wanted to fix this problem, we need not only make the customer experience a lot more transparent and easy to use, but we actually needed to enable the people who are ultimately footing the bill. Yeah. Um, like aware of what it is they're actually paying for. Yeah. And I think um, it's crazy to me that, you know, when the CEO of the company um, tells or well, in the army, I'll use an army example. Yeah. Uh, in the army, when the uh, the company commander says, "Hey, you better show up uh, ten minutes early," and then the first sergeant says, "Hey, platoon sergeants, ten minutes before that, you need to be there." Yeah. And then ten minutes before that, and then you know the private is standing there two hours early, yeah. waiting in formation. Right. It's like that past the buck mentality is how it kind of feels in as the user. You're like, I don't know any of the organizations that. I'm supposed to be working with to get insurance or healthcare or any of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, dental is separate. Vision is separate. All of this stuff. You're like, it's all part of the human body. I feel like this, we should probably be a little bit more aligned on like what, what is health. Um, if something, if you get an infection in your tooth and it, you know, it goes in your bloodstream and you die, like, shouldn't that have, isn't that health now? Like when is this crossover? I just think that there's so many like non-principles based decisions that were made that yeah. just kind of passed the buck down and nobody and it just kind of kept growing on itself. I'm curious, like as you untangled that that web, what were some of the insights that you found? I think the insights are exactly what you described. I mean, even even like in the army, you know, or just in the armed forces more generally, I mean, at least the budgets itemized, yeah, like true. the DOD budgets itemized. I can go look it up. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office puts it out there and it shows me sort of line by line what we're spending on. Are we spending on tanks or planes or whatever it is? In healthcare, so much stuff is hidden behind layer upon layer of cryptic jargon or even just frankly abstraction that for whatever reason, you know, no one at a federal or a state or even local level feels like is important to unpack 
for everyone. You just look at something as simple as like drug pricing. People have no idea how drugs are actually priced in this country. And the net effect, I think, of that lack of transparency is that drug prices continue to rise at an astronomical rate every year. I mean, our consumer price index grows by about one and a half to two percent a year. Drug prices have risen by about 15 percent every year for the last 20 years unabated. And health insurance costs have risen between six and nine percent unabated for the last 20 years. So there's clearly no scale effects to these large companies becoming larger. Microprocessors have gotten cheaper. Computers have gotten cheaper as the Intels and the Apples and the Microsofts have gotten bigger. Healthcare has only gotten more expensive as the Aetnas, the Cygnas, the United Healthcare's, the big pharma companies of, of the country or the world have gotten bigger. So somebody's abusing that market power. And it's sort of like, you know, where there's smoke, there's always fire. It's yeah. like there's smoke signals coming out of the industry. Like healthcare is now 20% of GDP up from 10% of GDP just 25 years ago and will be 30% of GDP in another 10 to 15 years. That's insane. And, and we know the places where health insurance hasn't played a role in intermediating healthcare. You look at things like LASIK surgery or even frankly, plastic surgery, things like boob jobs and nose jobs. Those have gotten cheaper <laughs> yeah, of over course. time. Yeah. Of so course. what does that tell you? That tells you that the market makers are again abusing their position, whether it's reselling drugs or reselling healthcare and packaging it up as a health insurance premium. And so when we looked to your point about insights, when we looked at how do we fix the system, we were like, well, where's where's there an entry point? Because they, these guys are like Fort Knox. I mean, like all of these huge insurance companies are multi-hundred billion dollar revenue businesses, tens of billions of dollars of cash, and just very, very entrenched, powerful market players with distribution channels that are very hard to penetrate. We were like, who's our ally in trying to dismantle this and actually create a transparent, flat, competitive market where there isn't one in healthcare? And we were like, well, employers, because employers have an incentive to keep costs down number one. And number two, employers have an incentive to understand where their money is going. I mean, no self-respecting CFO, including our own, is okay with, oh, hey, man, uh, I just want you to know that this budget's going up 20% this year. I can't tell you why. Our broker over here just said, we got to pay the piper. And you cool that? I mean, no. I mean, chuck me out of the room. But that's literally what CFOs have been conditioned to accept when it comes to healthcare. Oh, sorry, the premium is up 20% or our broker said we can't do anything about this. It's like, what are you talking about? Unpack it for me. Tell me why and then tell me what I can do to fix it. And that's, again, why we've chosen to focus on employers that, number one, actually don't buy insurance, but pay for their employees' health care costs out of their own pocketbooks, off their own balance sheet, because that removes already a level of abstraction that the insurance company loves to control. And then secondly, we focused on employers who for the most part, recognize that this is a societal problem. Yeah, like early adoption. Because it's eating into wage growth for their workers. And interestingly, we've had a lot of resonance with the tech sector initially, because as we all know, living, at least me living in San Francisco in the Bay Area or where there's a significant intellectual property um, nexus of people, those wage, that, that wage suppression is a real problem in terms of retaining and, and frankly, recruiting engineers and technical people. And so all that money that's going to healthcare could go actually into just paying people more. I mean, before we got to 10 employees, like we were, Chad, Stephanie and I, 
<clears throat> talking about like we need to get healthcare as humanly as soon as humanly possible for this company. Like we need to reinvest in doing that because it's not like it's like an expectation in the valley. Therefore, you should do it. It's like it's an expectation of happy employees that you feel safe and yeah, secure. Exactly. Like, and that's what just drives me crazy about this stuff. And I'm so glad that you started with employees. Is like again, back, you know, back to the army example is. If your mind is not in the fight, yeah. then you're not in the fight. Totally. Like if you have problems at home. Yeah, you're worried then, about this stuff. Yeah. Then then you are just not gonna do that. And um and I think that like we all look at it and have no idea. And the people I, I can't stand um the other thing about this that I can't stand, I can't stand when people are like, Well, you could just you should just get to know your benefits. It's like yeah, you should get to know macroeconomics. Like you should also get to know like, you know, Socrates, but like, I don't really have the time to do that, yes. that, you know, I could be spending, you know, doing whatever it is, learning the intricacies of healthcare. Totally. You like, don't need to know bond math to understand your mortgage. Yes. Right? Like, so why do I need to understand every acronym and every medical term to understand my health benefit plan? You shouldn't. It should be plain English, but I would tell you, I think that that's intentional. That's the way the industry keeps us out and keeps us from poking at the beehive because if they hide behind a bunch of acronyms and weird terminology, it becomes prohibitive. You're like, I don't want to go there. Like, I just, I just I don't want to touch it. And I remember like when we started the company, I tell people, yeah, we're going to, we're going to fix the health insurance sector and we're going to do it by helping self-funded employers. Like my friends in the valleys eyes all like glazed over <laughs> like after those terms they're like what the hell does that mean and i was like that to me is just a reinforcement of why i believe this needs to get done i mean and and i'm curious once you started working on the problem were you meeting people that were like ollie i love you i know you went through some stuff uh i know that was a personal thing that happened but like this is crazy yeah, definitely. I mean, still, I still meet plenty of people. <laughs> I mean, I even ask myself sometimes, like, am I really like cut out for this fight? Because it's a it's a generational fight. I mean, I tell people who join, don't expect this to be a five to ten year overnight success story. Like maybe some consumer, you know, tech products you might have worked on in the past. This is a this is going to take a generation to fix. So if you're up for a thirty year war, welcome. But if you're not, it's going to be tough. I love that. That's incredible. You know, we talk. Uh, a lot on the show, obviously, about being mission driven. Um, why is mission so important to your company? I think precisely for that staying power. I mean, when you ask, I mean, look at the formation of our of our own country. I mean, our forefathers sacrificed a ton getting on ships and coming over here to begin with, getting on wagons and you know braving the elements, let alone you know other adversaries populating the country. I think. If you're going to do something that requires principle, there's going to be a ton of sacrifice that you're going to have to walk away from, including, I think, in the case of a lot of people who leave us from the Amazons, Apples, Googles, Facebooks, et cetera, of the world, Ubers of the world to work here, maybe even potentially, I'd say, economic sacrifice. I mean, you could probably make a lot more money as a designer, product manager, salesperson, you know, partnerships person, engineer, working at one of those places, certainly in the in the near term than you would here. But hopefully, if you're motivated by a higher calling or higher authority, if you will, then that'll more than make up for the economic differential. Hopefully, over the long run, it will be 
you know, profitable for people to make that decision. But I think in the near term, a lot of people who come here have to feel like I'm doing this for a completely different reason. And when, you know, when you interview our people, you may have the opportunity to do that at some point. I think you'll discover that almost without exception, everyone is here, not because they can't get a job anywhere else, but because they want to do something that has meaning and purpose. And, and oftentimes that's driven by their own personal experience with the healthcare system that wasn't up to the level that they sh- thought it should be. Yeah. I, so my, and I've kind of said this on the podcast before, but, um, I had some army dentistry gone awry. Uh, so by the time I was a civilian, no longer at dentistry, uh, you know, like $8,000 later, yeah. it's like when you're starting for me, starting a company and I had no money and I'm like, $8,000 is catastrophic. Yep. Like that is, you know, you're flirting with bankruptcy when you have that type of thing. When you're talking about $200,000, like, again, the the use case is crystal clear for the why. Um, What's not clear is the how. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And I'm curious, like, this is a technology company. You have investors that are a lot of technology investors. Um how does technology play into your strategy? It's funny, like, well, I think one thing I want to mention before I answer that question is more than one out of every two of us, over 50% of us Americans can't afford an unforeseen medical expense of $2,000 or more. Yeah, Think of about course. that. Like literally a $2,000 unpaid or uninsured expense, medical expense, would bankrupt one out of every two of us. And as, as Elizabeth Warren, you know, demonstrated when she was at Harvard Law School, we estimate that about 70 percent of personal bankruptcies in this country are the result of uncovered health care expenses. Seventy percent. Think about that. Two My out goodness. of two out of every three. It's insane. And so there there is clearly a need for someone to fix this and fix this in a way that fixes it sort of permanently. And that's where I think technology comes to play. I think if you, like I said earlier, if you look at how the industry has evolved over time, it has evolved through an amalgamation of, frankly, M&A activity, acquisitions, and it's been largely business-driven, not customer, not product-driven. And I think much in the same way that technology has democratized everything from our access to media content, financial information and services, healthcare and its sort of pure form. You look at startups like Color Genomics and others and just how Illumina, how inexpensive it is to even sequence the, the genome. Tech has really sort of leveled the playing field and made things a lot more transparent and thanks to Moore's law, a lot more affordable over time so that we have much more productive, much more vibrant lives than we did even a generation ago. And health insurance is one of those like deep, dark, massive corners of our economy where clearly tech hasn't penetrated. And I do agree with Mark Andreessen, software will eventually eat the world. And what he means by that is software will will eventually enable all industry sectors to behave with the same kind of transparency and openness that the web does. And I think for me, that's one of the most exciting things about what we do. And while, yes, we are a technology company at heart, at the end of the day, the greatest technology companies, the greatest companies, period, are customer focused. Yeah. And this industry has completely lost sight of who their customers are, up to and including the federal government. I mean, when you look at the number of federal lawsuits. And, the ta- and ultimately taxpayers. Totally. I mean, it ultimately comes up. But when you look at the number of federal lawsuits against big insurance companies for Medicare, Medicaid fraud, 
you and the, then the numbers are staggering. We're talking tens of billions of dollars in damages. Clearly, this industry has completely lost sight of who it's even most biggest and influential and consequential and powerful customers are, let alone the little girl or the little guy like me who gets stuck with a unexpectedly large bill. See, I think the thing about technology companies that I love so much is that the best founders are just so relentlessly focused on the individual user at the end of the day, like the human centric problem, the person who's like going home to their spouse and had a long day of work and realizes that they have to go to the doctor in two weeks and, you know, something potentially uh, for some operation or whatever it is. Like those are the type of things that I think really separate, I think, the best founders. And I think what's so interesting about healthcare is, um, like, I don't think it's like a blame game of like, hey, this is the problem. And I think that's part of part of why this is so challenging. It's like, like you said, it's the collective, like you would call this technical debt if this was a pri- yeah. if this was a technology company, just the the technical debt of all of these healthcare companies yes. over time growing. Yes. Uh, that we stopped being principles first and, and user centric. Um, do you and think it's, it's the laziness and the lethargy that comes from looking at the problem being like, I can't do anything about it. Because to your point, I don't think the reason that the industry is in the state that it's in is because of malice. No, no, people, absolutely not. People who work in health insurance companies are not bad people. No, absolutely not. They just feel completely incapacitated to do anything about it. I mean, as someone who worked for the federal government, like figuring out a way how to make a difference feels daunting. It's hard. So if you're, you know, if you're the person that is, you know, at the PT clinic billing every, you know, billing 20 sessions, even though the person feels better after seven sessions, like that's the business model. So you're just going to keep, Hey, you need to do 20 sessions. Like, but my elbow feels fine. Like, no, you're going to build 20. We're going to do 20 sessions, right? Like that is misaligned incentives. Um, and anytime there's misaligned incentives, it's, there's an opportunity to someone for someone to come in and align those incentives. And, and I want to talk about the employer stuff. So no doubt you have, uh, you have customers like Pinterest, restoration, hardware, Red Bull, Zendesk, and more. It's interesting that, employers are so psyched up about this. Uh, and I'm curious, like, when did you have that aha moment when you were working with employers where they were like, wow, this actually makes sense. Like finally someone has figured out my pain. I mean, day one, I mean, just going through my own experience, I could see the frustration of my very own employer at the times, HR department's inability to just understand and explain to me why this happened and then to really do anything about it. I mean, I spent hundreds of hours on health insurance call center lines just trying to get super basic questions answered like, well, so what's covered under my plan? And the person on the other end of the line, oftentimes not even within this country, like you know, an offshore call center would say, well, can you pull up your plan document and read it to me? And I'm like, wait, what? You don't have access to my plan document. It'd be sort of like calling American Express and asking them to you know, explain how a charge was filed without them having access to the charge on their end. They'd be like, well, just read your statement to me. You'd be like, wait, what? You, I know. I, you produce the statement. What are you talking about? I know. I call USA and USA is like, right. hey, thanks for your service. You know, yes. uh, so you had a life event, you know, like all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, right. Well, great example of an insurance company that has a stratospheric NPS. I tell people actually internally, like that's our benchmark. USAA's NPS is 80. 
You're the second it's higher than Amazon's, higher than Apple's, higher than Google's. It's one of the highest in the world. You're the second CEO that has said that exact thing to me in the past two days. Yeah, it's insane. It's a great company. But anyway, to answer your question, it, it was day one. I mean, I went through my own experience and I was like, oh my God, I need to help these poor people in our benefits team like do this better because it's their responsibility and they're embarrassed by their incapacity. And it's interesting. I mean, each and every one of the customers that we have, employer customers that we have, cares very deeply about their people. Um, you could say it's it's compassion. I think there's an element of compassion in it, but I think it's also just very smart business to care about your people in a highly competitive environment. If you don't care about your people, they feel it, they leave, they have options. Yeah, it's the, it's the biggest differentiator. And again, like it's not lip service. It's no. we're going to focus on our employees to make them happy. And that goes way further than, yes. you know, talking about your core values, yes. like saying, hey, we invest in not only do we invest in your health, yeah. literally, uh, we are also always seeking ways to improve our processes to support you and your family. Absolutely right. And again, thanks to technology and its effect as a democratizing factor, the ability to move jobs, the ability to buy a different product if you don't like the one that you received is so much easier today than it was even when I was like a kid. Like yeah. you just even think about return policies. Like you don't like something from Amazon, you just ship it back and you get a refund almost instantaneously. Healthcare is like that one place that's sort of left in our economy where I think customers are still treated a little bit like hostages, you know, like they may have been in the early days of retail. And we represent a democratizing, thanks to technology, ability for employers to say, you know what, big insurance company, I've got this alternative over here and it's actually super easy to switch, so goodbye. And that's actually my hope in all of this. My hope in all of this is not, I mean, obviously I want collective health to be successful, but my hope in all of this is that we transform the industry and how it treats its customers and behaves writ large. Like a success for me would be if all large insurance companies, health insurance companies treated their customers like any great retail brand treats its customers. We're far away from that, but we're starting to see even these big juggernaut companies respond and start talking about how NPS is important. To I was them. just going to say, I mean, here's Which makes me happy. It makes me smile. I'm like, finally, like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, in startups, you fight where you can win. And it's like NPS, if that's your North star, which it should be every single company's North star, yes. um, then you're always going to be thinking about the customer. Did you, I'm curious, like, it's also bringing a live and let live mentality to the industry. I think the industry has felt like it's a it's like a zero sum game. Like what's not mine is somebody else's. And it's like, no, actually, it can be both. And even our model as a business, like we partner with big health insurance companies to lease their networks so that you can go anywhere that a Blue Cross or Blue Shield card is accepted, which is virtually every doctor and hospital in this country. And it's amazing to sort of see their initial suspicion, hesitation transform into belief and then like sponsorship within a very short period of time where they're like, oh, I get what you guys are now trying to do in terms of bringing this incredible level of service and transparency. And actually, we want to get on that bandwagon, just like you saw the big cell phone companies initially view devices like the BlackBerry or devices like the iPhone, like, uh oh, what does this mean for us? And now they're like, they're the biggest proponents. Like every billboard has, cross like, sell, yeah. right, has exactly has like a carrier's like logo on it alongside the device manufacturers. So my hope is that, again, as I said earlier, we bring the entire industry along in this process. 
So let's say, you know, Mission, for example, is looking at what's up with collective health. Uh, I'm curious. I want to see if this makes sense for our company. Um, what's that process like as you're talking to uh, a company to see if they're a fit for you? It's pretty straightforward. I mean, for our typical self-insured customer, um, it's almost as easy as send us a census of all of the people that you have, and then we'll estimate what we think your self-insured healthcare budget should be given your zip codes where people typically get care. And then presuming that that financial equation makes sense and the company feels like they're comfortable with the sort of variance and the bands of risk around what that expected value of the cost of care would be for them for the next year or two, three, four, five years, whatever it is, then it's a pretty straightforward implementation. We effectively integrate programmatically with an API-like format. I say API-like because most HR systems don't have well-formed APIs, but it's API-like in the sense of- For HR. It's automatic for the benefits people. Like they just, you integrate once and they don't have to touch a file again. And we basically receive enrollment data out of that HR system or benefit enrollment system. And then we get going. We send you your cards. We send you a link to the app. And then you can start getting care and it's up and running, just like any good enterprise software app. So are you, so you're working with, um, I'd imagine, I mean, I, this is a CEO issue. So I'm, I imagine there's buy-in from the CEO, but are you working with like uh, CHROs? Or are you working with COOs? Like who's, who are the type of folks that, that you work with on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, our typical, our typical end buyer is the benefits leader. So it's usually a director of benefits or director of global and comp and benefits or director of total rewards or VP of total rewards. But yeah, I mean, given, given the impact that a decision like this has on an organization, I mean, health insurance is not a kind of impulse buy, if you will. It's a very considered decision. It often goes all the way up to the CEO and or sometimes to the board and certainly goes through the CFO and CHRO's office for final approval. There's a great um, Ben Horowitz piece on this about like when you're selling, uh, you know. I've read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's so good. Well, you and, know. He's, and he's spot on. Yeah, because if you're selling to, so you're selling a product that every single in the person in the company has to adopt. If you're selling Slack, yes, and every single person is going to use it. If you're selling, you know, HR or whatever it is, it's a huge decision totally. because you have to get everyone to buy in. Yeah, uh, even though even if the price isn't big, and that's like the it's one of those things that like I think a lot of startups kind of miss the mark on is if you're selling a product that you want every single employee to use, like. You better make sure that uh, that the implementation and the white glove and service on that. Um, it's also what's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of people are enamored with sort of high velocity sales yep. models these days. I mean, Ben and others have written about them. Um, and our VP or our chief commercial officer was a former VP of sales at Workday. You know, Kevin Francis, who's there for nine years, likes to say he's like, yeah, that that's good. But everything has its shadow. Like what's easy to sell is also easy to replace. Yeah. And so for us. What makes it a considered and hard purchase also makes it very sticky, just like Workday. And Workday takes a long time to sell, but then, like, are you going to rip out your HRS system? Not likely. And so it's it's, it's funny that you bring that up because I remember, because I'm kind of a long tail guy, like I like self-serve models. That's what I worked on in my career, like self-serve online advertising, self-serve mobile ads, that yeah. kind of stuff, self-serve consumer products. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really scary to like have to go through like this long, impedance-heavy sales cycle. But what I love is the churn characteristics. Yep. I mean, we have net negative churn. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that. So it's one of the things that we 
focus on for for us in media too is the yeah. exact same thing is like if everything is self-serve on the market if google and facebook are all if you're competing with those dollars if you're create if you're you know running display ads on your site yeah. it's like oh then we should do none of that it's like we should focus on super long engagements three-year engagements building shows that last for 10 yes. years because you want to have the stickiest thing that's embedded in the company that they would never want to get rid of because they love it so much. Um, but totally. I know it, it is one of those and like neither's right, but for certain things, you know, they're also like, you know, we are the swipe right generation is a real thing. It is. Right. Um, After young kids, it's like swipe right, left, up, down. Yeah. Gesture. Um, but you know, it's funny. It's funny though. I, I was looking at this, this website, um, which is a, a C-level show or a C-level uh, group that we have a podcast for. And their average time on site is a minute, 58 seconds. And you just think of the, the person who's running that site every day, like, how do we get this to like two minutes? You know, right? Whereas like you take something like a podcast and you spend, you know, potentially an hour with it every day or every week or whatever it is. And I think that just like the way that we frame certain things, like, like healthcare, for example, the speed in which you get to a doctor is going to change completely because it has. yeah, because now it's like I could talk to a doctor online in 45 seconds. Like you look at like, you know, apps like you have collective health, two taps, you've got a telemedicine visit fired up. Yeah. So it's like those sort of things where like the flash to bang on that stuff used to be so long yeah. and it still is long mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, I'm that's curious. a great, great example, again, of technology democratizing access to things, whether it's media in the case of, you know, what you guys do or just what sort of the Netflix generation or the Facebook or YouTube generation is experiencing. But healthcare is no difference and, and, and different. And if you look at the proliferation of technology driven, like literally in your hand, healthcare apps, I mean, there's been over $30 billion worth of investment by VCs and health tech over the last seven years, that's not slowing down. It's only accelerating. And the way that we consume healthcare, which is again, another tailwind for us today is dramatically different than the way healthcare was consumed when the big health insurance industries came on the scene 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, even 20 or 25 years ago, like the principal way that you got healthcare was go to the doctor's office or the emergency room or the hospital if you were really sick. Like that was it. Well, now it's like you can track your fertility cycle. You can have a behavioral health visit, a primary care visit. You can have medicines you know, delivered and, and prescribed all using apps, all without like ever having to leave your couch. And I think that the idea of these like specializations and things like that, that like this, you know, if you look at it like a funnel, right, it's like you have generalist and then specialist and all this sort of stuff. What now I think is so exciting about the future of healthcare is that you can fit things to a problem rather than this generalist mentality. It's like, I'm, I'm excited to, to your point about, um, you know, LASIK, for example, like I'm excited for the person to disrupt dental care and just do extractions because extractions are extremely expensive. And it's like, if you could productize just that piece of it, you nice. could drive the price way down. But the reason why they're so expensive is because there's all this crap that goes into it. And I just think all of those different things, physical therapy is another example where, you have to be in person for physical therapy. Yeah. There is no way around. You cannot do that as a remote thing. Other things you can do remotely. So then have, being able to have proximate physical therapists all around, you know, 
like hubs is really fascinating. Totally. Like if you had on-demand physical therapy that you could see like same day, like that's a billion dollar industry, right? No and question. I just think all of those things as they change allow us it, with technology to be able to tap into those type of, you know, the Uber models, the, the Lyft models, the on-demand economy models, like that stuff is going to completely change how we view healthcare. It is already. And I think it, precisely to your point, the reason why those things are so expensive is the customer acquisition costs for the people providing that service is super high. Yep. And, you know, there's an app for that applies to healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and again, you look at what I was talking about earlier, you look at companies like Color or, or Illumina and what they've done with genome sequencing and how much technology has enabled that customer acquisition cost and production cost to plummet dramatically. I mean, it's a few hundred bucks now to get your genome sequenced with Color, for example. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars just literally 10 that's years so ago. Crazy. It's insane. Why is MRI so expensive? Sorry, keep going. But it, well, that's a whole that's a that's a supply issue. That's where, again, where things aren't clear the people who have the most supply can sort of choke the market, if you will. But there are freestanding MRI centers that are breaking that mold and taking the MRI out of the hospital. And those are typically on the order of 20 to 30 percent of the cost of a hospital-based MRI. And what's lacking, it's, it's the same phenomenon, what's lacking in people's awareness of those is just an aggregation platform or capability to make them aware of it. I mean, we are, as collective health, I would say analogous to Windows or Google search or the Apple App Store and just making access to these novel ways of getting healthcare abundantly obvious for people. Like it's this front door, it's this portal to all the different kinds of options, cost effective, uh, emphasize options um, to healthcare that just hasn't existed before. Because again, the industry has tried to control things and tried to keep price high for I, want of a better way of describing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it was Mark Cuban who was saying a while ago where he was just like, the fact that baselining your health is not like common practice, like every year you should get an MRI yeah. or like every year you should get these sort of things. Like you should know your baseline. Then as soon as things are triggered, if there's a change that you would know those things way in advance is like, again, pretty obvious but i'm i'm waiting for the uh the and I, I know there are some of these things but like the ambulance you know how ambulance are privatized i'm waiting for the uh, the mri in in the back of a truck in the back you know in the long bed of, of yeah. the pickup truck that just cruises around doing uh, on-demand mris i'm like i don't know how much an mri machine is but the break-even point's probably like a year and a half for uh for how many mris you can do stuff like that is like not even in the realm of like reality five years ago, but like going forward, it just makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, like what are other things that you see that you're really excited about um, that can, you know, help patients get care faster, you know, better and cheaper? Yeah. I mean, I think you're hitting on one of them, which is kind of the democratization of access to all kinds of healthcare, because what that does is it creates an opportunity for new supply to emerge. I mean, again, if you look at the web, it enabled the smallest content publisher and creator to operate effectively at the same level as the CNNs and the you know, NBCs and Foxes of the world. Similarly, I think what platforms like mobile, but also aggregation capabilities like Collective Health enable are a democratization so that novel and oftentimes digital first or mobile first healthcare options like 
a telemedicine visit versus having to go to try to book an appointment at a big tier one facility where you might wait months to see a primary care doctor become possible. I think the other thing that technology enables that is super interesting, we're seeing this already in therapeutics, is personalization. Yeah. Where even the drug that you consume is now tailored to your DNA. And similarly, your experience, and this is where we come into play as Collective Health, your experience in navigating healthcare is highly tailored to what we know about you. So we won't show you, for you know, for example, things that are inappropriate or inapplicable to your health. Like if there's no evidence, for example, of substance abuse, why would we show you a substance abuse center on the first page of a, you know, of a healthcare plan, for totally. example? Like we would show you things that are suited to you because there are so many options in healthcare. That personalization is actually really important in making access less daunting. You know, when you think about, you're like, okay, I got to go get care. You oftentimes are sort of stopped in your tracks with the, okay, but how do I find out where to go? It feels like this is very thick forest. And what personalization technology can do is kind of just merchandise to you that one or two things that just based on some cursory data we know, whether it's your age or your gender or whatever it is, that you should go and just have done because it's clinically the right thing to do. Like I just turned 45. The National um, College of Oncologists now recommends that well, it's not a lovely topic, but like guy, <laughs> guys 45 now and over get a colonoscopy. Like I should open up an app like Collective Health and it should say, hey, by the way, no, so you just turned 45. Lucky you. Yeah. You should go do this. I'm and that counting kinda, down the days. And that kind of goes back to Mark's, you know, Mark Cuban's point, which is the way that you create an appetite for that baseline to be set on a sort of periodic, I don't know if it's annual, but periodic basis. And there are good clinical guidelines for what you should do. I won't get into that is by, I think, making it more accessible, more personal, so the person doesn't feel too too daunted or too sort of forbidden from accessing or entering well, this labyrinth. Like, let's be clear, we're all worried about going to the doctor. That's part of this. Like, the human condition is like, no matter, even if you're the hypervigilant person that always goes, you're still afraid to go to the doctor. Yes. Like it's not a good feeling. Yeah. So therefore, if we have nudges and we use like nudge psychology and things like this to be able to be proactive, it's going to be, you know, hugely powerful. Especially when you educate people to the fact that, hey, those things that used to kill people 30 years ago actually don't kill people that often totally. anymore if you do something about it early enough. Like people, people with HIV are not dying of HIV. Yeah. anymore. They're living with it for a very long time, provided they get ahead of it and treat it early. People with many different kinds of cancers that would have killed them a generation ago are overcoming those cancers by treating them early enough. And so to your point, using nudge, you know, or behavioral economics and, and, and tools and psych behavioral psychology tools to just get people to preventatively take care of themselves is a big part of the role that I think personalized technology and platforms like Collective Health do have to play. And ultimately, and as we're seeing with our own trend results in our own book of business, will actually have a deflationary effect on healthcare cost in this country because people aren't deferring treatment until it's potentially too late or very costly, but actually getting kind of getting their stuff sorted earlier. Yeah. I mean, another piece on this that I think is super important is like the pain points of the doctors. Like robotic processing automation is going to 
like doctors spend so much time doing non-doctor things. And by definition, doctors are supposed to be pattern matching across large data sets. Like that's their job. Like they're mentally mapping what is going on with all of their patients. If that's the case, number one, AI can do that super well. Number two, the daily automation of taking notes and doing all the crap that they do, that they waste time on. You go talk to any doctor, like how much crap they do that's not working with patients is all going to be like robots are going to do that stuff, uh, little digital robots in your in your life. And like companies like UiPath and things, things like that already do that. You could do it right now if you're a doctor. So, I mean, I think that's the other piece of this is like the bureaucratic stuff is one bucket, but just like the like employee experience stuff is a whole nother thing. And that's part of this that's like life is just going to get better with like things like RPA. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, you know, a lot of people are are worried about what AI means kind of more generally. And those of us that have, you know, I have a pretty, you know, pretty decent understanding of AI having, you know, coded some very primitive sort of neural networks myself. Um, AI really is more of an exoskeleton than it is a robot. Yeah. It's, it, it's an enabling tool if designed well. It's not a replacement for the human brain, nor will it be for generations. Like the human brain has evolved over, you know, tens of thousands of years to be ultra sophisticated, not just the brain, but also your limbic system, your gut, if you will, has evolved to be a very sophisticated decision-making framework and complex, which even the most robust AI algorithms are still like very, very far away from emulating. But to your point, I think a lot of the low-level tasks can be automated, just like they have been in almost every industry. I mean, look yeah. about how cars are made. Like people don't sit there like screwing rivets into the side of a car. A big robot typically does that. And then they can up level and work on things like design or fuel efficiency or new engine, you know, or, or power configurations and, and architectures. And I think similarly, healthcare is undergoing that same kind of transformation. You see it with things like robots in the surgical suite, like the Da Vinci mm -hmm. type of robots. But you also, to your point, see it even in Google, where so many people self-diagnose. I mean, if you have a fever and you've got swollen glands, it's probably a limited set of things that is wrong with you. And that in and of itself is kind of a first order triage before you start to navigate the healthcare system. Taken to its logical extension, this should be just a very smart, you know, technology should enable just smart routing so that to your point, you're not taxing the system with people going and visiting places for care that actually have no applicability to their condition. I mean, if you feel lightheaded or you feel a little weak, you probably should do a little bit more digging before you go and get a scan of your head. Totally. yeah. Right. Or go to the emergency room. But a lot of cost in our system. And on the flip side, your point about doctors, a lot of the time wasted by physicians is on kind of lower level triage and you know you see the precursor to the robotization or the or the AIization of healthcare in any doctor's office and like I said my brother's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon you walk into his practice a lot of the kind of blocking and tackling is done by physician assistants and you know nurse practitioners my brother sort of gets in there to do the surgery or to sort of get into something that is very esoteric or not sort of seen before yeah but there's a lot of assistance around that and some, I don't think all, but some of that assistance can be even made better using a software or some other data-driven exoskeleton, if you will, so that even those people can then up-level their game by having instant access, kind of like smart glasses or you know, AR or VR gives us in a, in a game or other kind of a setting, and like if you instant have, access to data. 
Yeah. And if you have swollen glands and a sore throat, you might've just been podcasting, uh, 12 episodes <laughs> in four days. That's possible. Uh, I'm looking at my producers. Um, okay. Last question. We got to get out of here because you have a lot of important work to do. Um, of course I do want to just ask about SoftBank and, and what it's like working with, uh, with SoftBank and, and investors that are truly investing in like the future of humanity. Yeah, look, I mean, I, before I even get into SoftBank, we are very fortunate at Collective Health to have some very long-term oriented investors. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met Peter Thiel, but he doesn't think in like three-year time horizons. He thinks in like 30-year time yeah. horizons. And I think we were very fortunate getting Founders Fund as our early investor. Founders Fund is an angel investor in us too. Because as you know, they're, they're totally, they're actually, they're classic venture capitalists. I would say in many ways, they are of the sort of Don Valentine, you know, early Mike Moritz, Sequoia Capital ilk, where these guys were investing in super crazy founders and entrepreneurs and getting behind super crazy ideas that had no immediate payback, like no bank or self-respecting, you know, Wall Street, you know, merchant bank or financial institution would invest in. I like to think of you as super crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Crazier than you think. And, and. We were just very fortunate that they were our initial sort of seed investor and and first round investor because the conviction and the belief and as a result, the leeway and runway they gave us was pretty spectacular and still is. And then we were very fortunate in getting subsequently investors like Google Ventures and NEA and Maverick Capital and now obviously SoftBank and and Tiger Global and others um, to invest in collective health because all of them, without exception, are long-term thinkers. These aren't firms that are trying to make a 2x or 3x return on their money in five years. These are all firms that are looking for, as they would say, 100 baggers that you know really define a category and a generation of companies. And I think SoftCamp, SoftBank sorry, is sort of like the extreme encapsulation of what that means just in terms of the sheer amount of capital they have access to. But what I really like about them actually is their operating mentality. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met, you know, Masa personally or some of the senior leadership, including people like Deep Nishar, who's on our board. These they're builders, like, and they know how to build companies. They they come from that kind of operating menta- mentality. Like Masa ran one of the biggest software publishing firms in the world for a very long time and has started many, many, many operating companies under the SoftBank umbrella. Similarly, Deep on our board was at Google as a product manager and then ran product for LinkedIn for almost a decade. And that was the thing, in addition to the gobs of capital that they represent, that really interested me in them as lead investors for this last round. And I I will say that as much as I thought they were going to be what I thought they were going to be, they've been that plus a whole lot more. Like there's just an entire operating team that's been assigned to us that has like veterans out of healthcare and places like Facebook and elsewhere that has given us a tremendous amount of lift in how we both think about the business, but also in actually getting us sort of access and introductions at a scale that I haven't seen from frankly any investment firm. And I've worked with a lot of the best ones. And I think it's, it's, to your point, like, and I love that you're talking about Founders Fund being being that way, and we we love the folks over there. They're just awesome to work with. Um, and a lot of people would say that they're crazy. I mean, yeah. Right? I mean, I you talk to some other, like, maybe let's call it jealous VC competitors, and they're like, oh, they're nuts. That's yeah, like, I mean, yeah, crazy like a fox. Yeah. 
But sure. also a little crazy. But I, but again, like that's the thing, right? Like, yeah, I remember Mike Maples talking about when he invested in um, in Twitch was yeah. Justin TV. He's like, it was a dude walking around in a backpack. Yeah, with a camera. So stuff like that, I think no, he's a floodgate. But I just think that stuff like that is, you know, it's really hard to figure out what that stuff looks like. Um, and I think the other piece of this is like there's certain companies that like yours that need massive amounts of capital to solve a huge problem that needs to be solved now. Like that's one of the other things that kind of like peeves me about, about people who like kind of demean the pace of technology is like, this is an epidemic currently. Yes. We're bankrupting, you know, two thirds of people, like you mentioned, yeah. uh, because of, you know, hospital bills, you were ruining families or ruining lives. Like, it's a freaking urgent problem and we need to solve it. Yes. Uh, and that's the stuff that I just, you know, I'm super excited to follow along in the journey. You know, this is, uh, is really exciting stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you guys do. I think the, the market needs a mission oriented, mission driven media brand. And hopefully you guys can capture that sort of at scale because, I think even the tech sector, I mean, I'm stating the obvious in the Valley, there's a really, really strong shift occurring with sort of the millennial and post-millennial generations away from just the need to get a high paying job that's going to produce an economic success in a short period of time to one, I mean, that I see just in, in interviews, I do lots of interviews, obviously, of candidates to one where like people really are looking for meaning in their lives. Yeah. And they want to apply that precious 20, 30, 40 years of a career towards making the country a better place. And yeah. obviously healthcare is a great place to start, but there are many other places as well. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just, uh, so highlighting that, like you guys do is a, I think a really, really important tailwind for us. Well, thanks. And we're, we'll talk soon. We'll have, we got to have you back on the show. Cause, uh, we, this is just too much good stuff. So that'd be awesome. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.